from there, I'd probably try to network with um, Iranians uh, who I'd meet while purchasing large amounts of sturgeon, uh, figure out how to get to the Baltic Sea, scoop up some green amber, which goes well with diamonds, and then from there do my best to haggle successfully until I could unearth some sort of vintage heirloom worn by some nobility about 400 years before and hopefully housed in a uh, peasantish sort of museum and undervalued ever since. So that would be sort of my long-term goal of getting the best possible diamond. I think that makes sense. Welcome to Landline Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist that Alex could never have actually gotten unless I was his friend from 10 years ago. You're lucky because on today's episode, it's Saul versus Alex, Alex versus Saul. Two white men talking about themselves. Featuring a career elitist trying to find a purpose for his life. A Jewish male shopaholic, as if that's news. You're listening to Landline. Test, 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 test. All right, I think we're good to go here. Landline podcast. Welcome back to Landline Podcast. It is Tuesday. It is Landline. Although we might switch to Thursday. What do you think? Call the Landline. Let us know. That's 503-894-8480. And we will check in with one of our favorite, most beloved, most listened to guests. That is Saul. A little bit of Alex versus Saul. Saul versus Alex. Hope everyone's having a great holiday season. Remember, we've got a gift guide up on iTunes, wherever you listen to the show, we've got a great episode with Max, the Marine. We have an interesting discussion of Roy Moore, Trump, Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam, and my obsession with anti-technology, starting a technology firm with my mother. All that is available online, wherever you listen to the show. Let's give Saul a call and see how it goes. Landline. This is Saul speaking for landline purposes so excited to have you back Saul we could we could the 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 crowd goes wild well look I I'm excited for a lot of things about this um number one is it safe to say that this is the first podcast we're doing where we actually live in the same time zone where we live in the same time zone for at least the next three to four months sure we have podcasted in the same time zone on my porch of course some of the most well-listened to, well-loved podcasts of landline history. So um, people are happy to know that we're symbiotically connected again and that we can create sparks for their ears, their hearts, and their minds. Now, I frankly wish that we were on your porch at this very moment. Um, And oddly enough, I'd still have to be campaigning for Godfather since um, I have a competitor who knits baby sweaters way better than I ever could. Well, um, I wanted to start the show 
by reading something. I've been reading things before the um, each show begins, and that's been by myself. And I decided that a good thing to do with you would be to actually read something out loud I sent to you. And um, we would be able to kind of debrief from there and also just be a nice lubricant for our long-standing loving relationship and you know i'm sure start the conversation going in a way we both loved well i, I was hoping you were going to read from one of my many novels non-fiction works or poetic stories but i'll take whatever you got okay this is from 9 12 2006 which is five years and one day after september 11th for those of you who work in the september 11th calendar and the title of it is The Apex of My Summer. This is an email that also had a few other recipients, but of course you were the most important one. Obviously. Oh. Oh my God, the digital world is invading us. My phone was just ringing out of my computer. Horrible. Anyways, here we go. <clears throat> I just... Excuse me, let me start again. I just got home drunk on stolen Maker's Mark after winning two out of three Euchre games off beginners. How do you spell that word? I put a tablespoon or more of butter into a pan and started frying it. I took half a fresh baguette from this afternoon and butterflied it lengthwise, pressing it against the warming pan in the growing pool of melted butter. I sliced an F1 hybrid tomato picked earlier today from the front porch and retrieved the crumbled blue cheese from the meat and cheese drawer in the refrigerator. After flipping the baguette, I sprinkled liberal amounts of blue up and down onto the glistening open face. After a few minutes, the cheese melted from the predictable spatula flattenings, and I brought the bread section over to the cutting board where I had layered fresh, local, farm basil and homegrown tomatoes, soon applying a few heavy dashes of salt. Fold it and ate it. Easily one of the top ten sandwiches of my life. Tim has bloody feet from walking from New Haven to Windsor and sleeping in dirtbag motels. And that's the end. <laughs> well, if I clap for anything these days, which I don't, I'd clap for that email. Uh, it's refreshing to hear, and I remember when I was first reading it, and it holds up well over the test of time. It's just a little vignette. Um, could you shed a little light on what what our friend Tim, the winemaker, also of Landline fame, was doing that he had bloody feet? Well, I remember it well, um, partially because I nearly accompanied him on a journey that would prove to be both calamitous and injurious to uh, the feet of which uh, the people who are trotting on that path. Uh, Tim has a lot of ideas, and most, if not all of them, sound extraordinary when he tells you about them. And this was one of them, where he wanted to walk, or shall we say march, from Manhattan, technically Astoria, Queens, to New Hampshire, technically Hanover, uh, on his own volition by means of train tracks. And he pitched this as this kind of, you know, wonderful and unique vantage point to, uh, to see some of New England and the tri-state area uh, 
by means of both a locomotion and view that most people don't often get. Uh, he was going to bring some of his trusty cameras with real film, none of that digital shit for Tim. And he was going to spend about a week, I believe it was, kind of um, leisurely marching across one one battlefront after another uh, northwards. And like I said, I came very close to going. Um, I think grad school got in the way, as I recall, but um, I was almost there. And what happened? Oh. He got, he. I mean, it sounds like he got to Connecticut. That's that's pretty good. I think, you know, to to not blame Tim, uh, to, to mitigate slightly, uh, I want to say that he was either in a new pair of shoes or shoes that hadn't, shoes that hadn't been properly broken in, but I could be wrong about that. Maybe the train tracks were simply, especially gravelly, sort of like my deep baritone voice. But either way, uh, the journey proved far more arduous than one might have thought during the planning stages. Um, I think if we were picking a title from a Mark Twain story, we'd probably have to call it the uh, private history of a campaign that failed. (laughs) And sadly, this campaign, too, came to failure somewhere around Hartford, Connecticut, uh, upon which he had to be picked up and shipped home uh, with both feet, uncomfortably shedding blood at virtually every opportunity. You're telling me that he didn't have the shoes from his previous four-state train track uh, voyage available prior to embarking on this one, and that's why he had to get a new pair, something of that nature. Yeah, as, as I remember the situation... Uh, there were those mitigating circumstances, but no matter what happened, we're we're looking at an end result that did not um, sort of jive with the uh, projected outcome. We can all agree on that. Well, it's interesting because I spent some time with Tim in the last few weeks, um, and I brought for he and our other friend Gabe um, some Super 8 film and the brand new Super 8 camera my wife gave me, the new used Super 8 camera, and Super 8 is like such a node of uh, importance in the landline um, lexicon because not only does it represent this old-fashioned technique that I use and does it bring, you know, literally tears to people's eyes when they see it because they realize that the world was a better place when we used real film and when we took the time to project it and that, you know, you don't need great sound and color and all these things to make you feel like you're in a special moment on Earth. In fact, it takes away... It also represents this, um, you know, beautiful medium that uh, I've been using for years that everyone else is now saying is a good idea again. You start to see Super 8 in all these films, and it's an example of me being 10 years ahead of everything, which is going to be a theme of this show. But anyways, to, to make this first point, Saul, I brought two brand new rolls of film and the Super 8 camera. And both of them looked at me in disgust when I delivered them as their um, birthday presents. Neither of them picked up the camera for even a single second. They had no motivation to use any of the film. They had no motivation to use the camera. We were in beautiful landscapes. We were skiing. We were shooting guns. We were in the eastern Oregon desert. We had our kids. We had beautiful sunlight for four days. I will say cell phones were used a fair amount if you catch my drift. But... Nobody picked up the camera. I ended up shooting one roll while we were shooting clay pigeons, which was great. Um, but I guess that's just 
a reflection of a lot of my disappointment, which is that uh, I thought we would still do cool stuff. I thought Tim would still walk on stupid trips on train tracks, and yet all of those trips and ideas are basically gone by the wayside. We're a bunch of fucking losers now is the point of this story. Well, so why why is that? Why are people so willing to pull the trigger on, say, a Remington 870 shotgun and yet not on the uh, Super 8 camera that you so lovingly presented? I don't understand that. I don't like it either. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because it's been literally 10 years of hearing me incessantly talk about the Super 8 and get excited about the Super 8 and plan about the Super 8 and project. But here's, here's the thing, Alex. Here's, here's the thing. It's, it's exactly like all when you're like, you know, grandfather tells you you should start like, you know, investing $10 a month in the stock market when you're, you know, 12 years old, because then you can retire when you're 60. And you just think, what could be a stupider idea than taking 10 bucks I could spend on like weed and gummy bears and like putting it into the market? So obviously you don't. And then that's why none of us will be retiring on schedule. But the whole thing is that for you, with the Super 8, you've been making that investment. You've been putting in your $10 worth of film and footage every year now since approximately the turn of the century. And it's paid off in dividends. You have this amazing archive of footage of our closest friends, our happiest moments, our least happy moments, and some people who neither one of us would ever call friends. And yet we have all these things collected. Like, you've, you've done the market. You've played the market. Why don't people give you credit for that? I don't know. Maybe because I'm just so annoying. I mean, like, am I so annoying? It's like, let's go through the list of things I've said that were going to happen. I mean, let's start, with, let's start with Facebook. Should we just, I mean, can we just do three seconds on Facebook? People getting sick of me talking about Facebook yet. When was the first time I said Facebook was stupid? Like, in 2008? Yeah, I mean, the first time I remember you saying that was prior. I think the first time you said it, uh, Facebook wasn't even accepting applications from, like, non-IV university students. All right, so I was so on, the, I was time, on the first time you talked shit about Facebook is probably still primarily known as, like, a dating site. Facebook it was the Facebook, and I signed up because I was at an Ivy League school, and I got on there, and I I remember distinctly that I actually had a Mark Twain quote. Remember there were quotes? It was like favorite movie, favorite music, quotes, and I had this Mark Twain quote from Huck Finn on the chapter where they're in a deep like southern slum, and the, the character Boggs is prominent. And the quote that I had was something about raping. I mean, that's how stupid I am when it comes to social media. I had a raping quote on my Facebook page. Okay. Then I'm sure I came home drunk. Yeah. I'm sure I came home drunk one night and realized that, like, I just, my, that I was trying to make comedy out of Facebook, that if everyone was going to, like, present themselves as something to the world, that it had to be an opportunity to make a joke, right? I mean, in the classic example of, People just making fun of everybody doing the same thing. It's like I wanted to have a laugh about Facebook. Um, so there's an example. I was ahead on this podcast of the NFL. 
I said five years ago that the NFL is going to start losing popularity. There's no way it's going to have this precipitous rise up and up and up and up. And that Mark Cuban is right for saying that pigs got fat and hogs got slaughtered. That there was no way that all these concussions and all this greed and all these TV contracts and all these pre presentations of the NFL is like the only sport would work out well for it. And what do you see? The NFL is having the worst six months of any major sport in the last 30 years. I mean, have you and I don't remember any time in our life where every single headline about a sports um, you know, league was negative. I mean, it's from this. It's, guy. it's losing. It's losing viewers in a demonstrable way. Um, it's a constant war with about half the politicians in our country. Um, some of the same people who have always loved the NFL are now saying that they don't understand its values. Some other people who have loved it are coming from the other direction, saying they don't understand its values in a completely opposite way. Um, its own players hate the organization to a pretty substantial extent. Um, its commissioner is widely seen as a greedy, money-loving uh, corporate fat cat who has no interest in the players' good. Um, and it's caught in the crosswinds of like domestic abuse and concussions. Uh, it's in a terrible position. You're absolutely right. And sexual assault. Now the head of the the um, Carolina, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, has to sell because he has been sexually assaulting women in his office for the last twenty years. Okay, fine. So, I I mean, where else am I? I should have a list. I didn't do the production. We're we're jumping into this so early. I haven't even gotten my 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 sea legs yet, but. Here's one for you. Here's one moving forward. Forget about what I told you so. Here's one for you. Whole Foods. Whole Foods is a complete piece of shit. Everybody wake the fuck up and stop shopping at Whole Foods. Jeff Bezos, horrible for the world. Amazon, horrible for the world. Continuing the destruction of Main Street. Continuing the destruction of our environment. Let's see. Do you think getting a .3 pound plastic piece of shit from China shipped to your door overnight with plastic bubble wrap, a cardboard box, jet fuel, truck fuel, robots in some warehouse the size of 10 football fields. Do we think that's a net positive for the environment? Do we think that's a net positive for the economy? There's no way. Stop shopping on price. Why is it so cheap? Why is it so cheap when you're using Google? Why is Google able to give you all these results in no time flat? What about Alexa? What about Google Home? Has anyone been reading the, the, the headlines about Google Home in the last week? Turns out they're listening to everything you say, and then they're going to use you for advertising. Why is it that I say this stuff, and people just think I'm an annoying asshole with a nasally voice? Is it because they don't want to square up to what's going on? Or do they actually not care? People don't care. Maybe they don't care. Maybe nobody wants to get back to a world where you could actually keep the government, but more than the government, I mean, the government is so stupid that they can't even get their shit together to actually invade your privacy. Do you want greedy, you know, self-proclaimed masters of the universe, Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg? Do you want Mark Zuckerberg at your dinner table? Do you want him with his, like, weird, oily skin and his, like, sort of albino eyes and his bad dress code and his like meek voice and his inability to understand that I don't give a shit if he invested the social network. Do you want him at your dinner table like talking about everyday life? 
sounds like a nightmare to me. These people are all nightmares in my eyes, and I don't understand why we keep saying. I do understand. It's because of profit. It's all based on shareholder profit. There's going to be a massive destruction of this system at some point down the future. But the thing I really care about is that nobody that I know of my age, my friends, I mean, this is the critical point that I realized in the last two months with some of the people that I have my lifelong friendships with. Nobody is waking up and trying to make a change. I don't get why we're not fighting these things tooth and nail every day. Instead, we're just using our phones, we're just using our computers, and we're just completely copacetic or compliant or whatever the proper word is. You can tell me on all of this system taking over our identity, our privacy, our habits, and it's 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 ruining our society. There you go. There's I maybe I should just never do another landline. Pretty much was all there. Well, look, Galileo was branded a heretic. Uh, Mitt Romney became the laughing stock of the entire country when he when he called out Russia as being a geopolitical enemy. Uh, and in between, there are plenty of other examples. A lot of the time, the people who are right get laughed at him. Maybe you're just doomed to be one of those visionaries who's scorned in your life, and then later on people listen to this and say, wow, he really had a point. All right, well, let me drill down on Whole Foods, and then we'll get to some of our agenda here. But I'd like to just for the record state that yesterday I went to Whole Foods for potatoes and onions, spent $150, and then it was three hours into a Hanukkah party when someone pointed out I'd forgotten sapling. So I had to go back to Whole Foods, high as a kite, buy it, and then end up in a long questioning stream with the employees who wondered why I was just buying sour cream. And I ended up inviting them to my Hanukkah party. Did they come? No. But I was also too high and I forgot <laughs> to give them my exact address. <laughs> that was very landline of you to invite them, though. I love that. Yeah. It also made me good feel good to be able to say that I did indeed have um, some sort of potato product to put the sour cream on. All right, well, so the, let's just go through the pyramid of, of food shopping in, in Landline's view. Number one, the farmer's market. If everybody could get everything at the farmer's market, they would, they should. I could argue that all day long. They can't. You can't get spices. You can't get a lot of oils. You can't get citrus if you live in Oregon. You know, a lot of farmer's markets out there, you're always going to have to go to the grocery store. Okay, fine. So you could decide. In my case, I choose sort of like the bigger Kroger, Fred Meyer, Safeway-style store for things like flour, sugar, because it's the exact same bag. It can, you can get organic, and it's you know 60% of the price of the natural foods competitor, Whole Foods or another comp, uh, company. And then in Portland, we have a local whole, whole Foods chain called New Seasons, which is specific to the Northwest. It's probably 60 stores. It's just a little bit different branding and, you know, whatever. You just feel like you're not going to the behemoth. Okay, I know so many people shop at Whole Foods, and they think they're right, they're doing the right thing. I decided on the day before Thanksgiving that we would go to Whole Foods all because I wanted bulk spices. Bulk spices are the hidden gem of the grocery store. You can get the same amount of cardamom or star anise or cinnamon or anything that goes into a mulling spice for that matter, cloves, you know, we can go down the list, all spice. You can get the same amount in a $9 or $7 organic jar in the bulk session and you weigh it on the on the little scale and you're so afraid that it's going to be like, you know, oh my God, was this a good move? I'd have to go back. I'm not going to go back. Is it going to be $11? I should have gotten the jar. I didn't know how much this was going to cost. Did I put the code in right? 
it's 17 cents every time. Every time you get bulk spices, it's 17 cents. It's 39 cents. It's $1.28. You can't believe it. You want to just live off bulk spices because it's such an incredible value. So I went to Whole Foods specifically to get bulk spices. We're looking around. We're looking around. We're filling up our cart. We're doing the $150 trip you did. It was probably $300. We should get some of this. We should get some of this. Some annoying person asked me in the wine area, was everything okay? I said, yes, thank you. And instead of saying you're welcome, she said, cool. Cool is not an answer to thank you. That's a you're welcome, okay? Something I brought up a couple episodes again, but I'll reiterate. Anyways, turns out they don't have bulk spices at Whole Foods anymore. You know why? Because Jeff Bezos bought it. And Jeff Bezos decided what he's going to do is he's going to replace all the stuff that was high quality, well-sourced, direct trade, good for the farmers, good for the suppliers, good for the customers with shit he knows he can monetize at scale because that's how Amazon makes money. He's going to replace ingredients. He's going to make sure that Whole Foods labels on you know as much shit as he can because then he gets a larger percentage of the customer's value. He's going to take away things that don't have a good profit margin. You're going to end up with a bunch of overpriced bullshit that's not even as good as going to Stop and Shop or whatever it is. So, and you know for you know for a fact that this was a Jeff Bezos instruction. Drop the spices. No, I mean, are you asking me or are you are you affirming what I'm saying? Both. I don't know. Like, what do we do? We need to ask. Can't, this is what I'm saying. Why are you get? Why, why? How could I be wrong? How could any of my logic be wrong? If Jeff Bezos buys Whole Foods. Do you think he's going to start going around door to door in a Volkswagen van and making sure that all the cows are being treated properly? What do you think his move is? It's going to be burning a bunch of jet fuel talking about how the world is exploding. Well, I just mean, for example, I, I more mean that Whole Foods are simply not every store is alike. For example, I have a, um, a squirrel-shaped nutcracker that I bought at the Alameda flea market a few years ago. I like to keep it stocked with uh, hazelnuts uh, because they look like acorns, so it looks like the squirrel has a giant pile of acorns. And I can go to one Whole Foods and buy bulk hazelnuts to fill up the squirrel every time people come over and eat them. And I can go to, like, nine others and can't. So that's really the only reason I'm asking. Like, maybe your Whole Foods was told by Jeff Bezos not to sell bulk spice, and maybe it just doesn't do that. I don't know. I agree with your larger point. All right. Well, my larger point is I don't think we should be putting all our faith in these like unicorn white technology men to solve all, all our problems. So with that, I thought we should go to your list. You had a lot you wanted to talk about. Sounds like I, I've you got me all hot and bothered. Um, there was also an email I was going to read about the college cookbook for guys that we were going to write, but well, I th- that was, that was, that was actually one of your more prescient moments. I, I, I mean, that was the, the, the fact is that in the year 2000, late 2005 to early 2006, we wanted to write a cookbook called cooking for college guys. And just as importantly, we wanted to start a cooking show starring obviously us because we don't feel that anyone in the world can play us better than us. And we were going to be cooking on it. Uh, with recipes, uh, with drinks, and with instructions for a different meal, depending on who you're having over. Are you having your girlfriend's parents over for the first time? Here's what to cook. Are you having six, you know, people who are bad at poker coming over and you want to put out some light aperitifs? Here's what to make. 
So that, to me, um, stands as one of your truly uh, inspired and yet also ultimately deficient moments because it was kind of right on the cusp of the whole YouTube revolution. Like in a different universe, I'd say that me, you, and Tim are high-paid YouTube stars with a successful cooking show. Here's the email. Cookbook. So I talked to you both last night. It seems the enthusiasm for the cookbook is just as high as ever. And more importantly... Can you just, just to interject the date of the email, give it to us. Okay, it's 6308. And I've already referenced the fact that we brought it up earlier. Now, this is like a redux. I can't find the original stuff because it's on my Columbia account, which I don't have anymore. So I talked to you both last night. It seems the enthusiasm for the cookbook is just as high as ever. And more importantly, our ability, willingness to actually do it is also there. Basically, short story short, the hostel is a huge project that will take a lot of work and planning and probably can only happen when we're all in one place we want to be. So the cookbook is a cash cow that could possibly get us to that place. Oh my God, the youthful exuberance here, Saul. This is insane. Saul, if you... Believe me, that's gone. Saul, if you send us what you have... We'll read it and start shaping a plan. Basically, as I said on the phone, I think the best thing to do is after initial discussion and agreement of what we think we want, making one template of one recipe and then just coming up with all the rest and recreating the template. The funny writing part is probably the easiest. Making recipes that are good and correct is probably the hardest. Taste testing. I know we make all this stuff, but just making sure... We get people's opinion on flavor. It is a cookbook after all. We should set realistic long-term goals. Having a proof of the book finished by October 1, the day Ainsley Street lease runs out. I'm willing to meet twice in person between now and then about the book, i.e. fly to San Francisco. Man, my dad must have still been giving me money then, huh? And have as many phone conversations as we need. First step is getting the 50 from Saul and then figuring out what we love and what we would change. Game on. By the way, just just to to you know to end the suspense, nobody ever answered that email. Well, just and to um, do nothing to increase the suspense. On June eighteenth, two thousand six, um, I have a comment from me to your Columbia account and Tim, saying who I guess is also a Columbia account saying. Titled Cookbook, not doing it would obviously be easier and would have the added bonus of extending the giant list of things we've thought about but not done to an even more sizable length. So that that at least was true. Let's just I make- also I also mentioned that one of the central dilemmas in the book should be does one get caught and yelled at for trying to make a veal stuffed roast pigeon wrapped in bacon rashers when he was supposed to make an arugula and radish salad? Who gets Schadenfreuded where and when? Oh, my God. I mean, the, the the upside is, and we don't have to go into any of the details because I know you like to leave your podcast personality separate from your real life, but you have, in fact, succeeded as an author. So we'll all cheers to you for that. And you did work hard, and it turned out the best step to making that happen was to ditch Tim and I. Um, and I guess I want to just nail home the biggest humor of the email I wrote, which is that not only did we think we would write the cookbook – but we thought that from the proceeds of selling said cookbook, we would build a hostel all together. So, <laughs> we, I mean, 
And this just goes to how basically 35-year-olds erode their youthful exuberance and their planning for good and for bad into uh, you know, a new identity that is ultimately safe. People basically play it safe. Um, and those who don't play it safe get some sense of notoriety or accomplishment or whatever it is. They, 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 you know, the, the people who are written about in the New York Times on Sundays are not the safe players. They might end up you know, getting caught with their pants down around a potted plant six or 60 years later, but they ultimately sort of take the risks that other people aren't willing to take because they're not willing to expose themselves, pun intended, I guess. So there you go. I think it's for bad. I don't think it's for good. I think we had great ideas and we were stupid about following through. And here we are. Hey, listeners, quick break to check in with last week's show. Linda, the baby boomer, was the guest. She's not available for a callback. Her schedule is filled what, with being semi-retired for the last 40 years. So I'm just going to play a quick clip from the show. Remember, you can listen to that on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, in addition to all the other shows that we've done over the past few weeks and past few years, Call us on the landline, 503-894-8480 to chime in, message, or conversation. If you have suggestions for topics, email us email us at landlinepodcast at gmail.com. Let's keep spreading the word, tell a friend, and get past Rick Steves on the landline or on the podcast counter. Okay, here's a clip. My fundamental point of view is I just don't get why everybody does it. There's nothing out there. I mean, more people are abstinent. More people choose never to have sex than choose never to use the internet or use. Is that true? Well, of course. There's whole worlds of people who never have sex, or like, look, there's monks. Do you see any monasteries of people who don't use iPhones? The monks don't use the internet. That's right. And they don't have sex. Okay. All right, fine. So there's a nice Venn diagram there of people who don't have sex and don't use the Internet. I mean, maybe that's what I need to do is stop having sex and I'll hang out with people who don't use the Internet. So my question is, what if, you know, you is there a gray area in the Vietnam War? Like, I feel that the gray area was the people like me who were young and in the first um, protest I went to, I was. Uh, I think I was still in high school. I might have been my freshman year in college. Mom, Mom and Dad forbade me to go, and I went anyway. And um, the whole thing was, and over the years there were more and more of them, and they were wonderful because they gave you a sense of belonging to something and having power and and being part of a community, of course, none of that was really true. But that's the way those marches feel, and I think they're wonderful for people. I think they, when you're in despair, they give you hope. But they were very disrespectful. We were disrespectful of the pe- of the people who went and fought in Vietnam, and I am shamed by that now. Mm. But I was too young to understand and too black and white. That was my conversation last week with Linda, the baby boomer on Landline Podcast. Listen, if you haven't, all our previous episodes are available online, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Someone's going to yell at me for saying that. 
If you're already listening, you already know that. It's actually a really stupid thing to announce every show. Let's be honest. Okay, anyways, call the landline, 503-894-8480, landlinepodcastgmail.com. Let's get back to Saul. We're about to go to Russia to Caviar Stuff Bellinis and Diamonds. Merry Christmas. Well, do you? I mean, let's talk. Let's talk about that. I mean, there's an there's an item that really is has broad appeal and can drive listenership and help me pass. So I don't know if you've heard the latest episodes from this season, but my goal is to pass Rick Steves on the uh, listens number. So um, that's we will. We will. Okay. So, so let me open up to you here. I see a lot of blank space on your sound line and a lot of angry, boring, redundant space on mine. Do you, do you, where, how do you do that? How do you become a risk taker and still engage with any and all of the opportunities that are out there for people who want to become an adult? Like, I'm not saying don't have kids, don't, don't get married. I'm not even saying like don't get your finances in order, but there's got to be there's somebody out there is feeling like they're on the cutting edge every day and still has a relatively normal life when it comes to engaging with society socially and emotionally. Um, I think fundamentally you just have to do things instead of not doing them. And we've proved ourselves extraordinarily good at not doing them. Well, is this going to like spin you into a depression? Or are you going to hang up the phone? It sounds like this is why I didn't start with that email. That was I well, ha- no, I, I feel great about it um, because I'm saying we. I've I've done plenty of things that I that I wanted to do, but we as a totality, meaning several of us who talked about awesome ideas for years and never followed through with any of them, even going into the uh, present day with everything from a mezcal empire to a. Um, canned wine foundation uh we're great at that also the pizza cart i know that that was never going to be like a lottery ticket but i had a pizza cart five years before anyone else and now you see them at every farmer's market in the country and i had we we started a website which we weren't friends.com that was basically the precursor to barstool sports it wasn't it was funnier it was smarter it was better written and it wasn't about sports and that flamed out as well Plenty of flameouts. Plenty of flameouts. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, I don't. I don't know. They, the the real answer to your question is I don't know, and that's a, that's a terrible podcasting answer. That's a terrible podcast <laughs> answer. No, I mean I, maybe, I, maybe people out there will know, and they'll call in on the landline five zero three eight nine four eighty four eighty and leave us a message on their point of view. Let's switch gears to something exciting, Saul. You're rich. You're successful. You uh, are in a you know torrid and exciting and consensual love affair, which we won't get the details on. But you wanted to talk about jewelry shopping, and I feel like that topic uh, relates to everything I just said. So let's completely switch gears and let's go someplace different. And I think your your take on jewelry shopping is something that our female listeners, especially, will be very excited to hear about. Especially as the holidays are coming up, and who doesn't want a nice gemstone under there? talking so i mean the real thing is that jewelry when you when you date in your 20s um at least for me and everyone i knew meeting people who are completely broke and unhappy most of the time the the last thing you're thinking about is is buying gifts of any sort but especially jewelry uh when you're 20s if you have extra money 
your concern about like um, getting fast food after the bar at 2 a.m. or going on a vacation that you think is cool but actually isn't that awesome for like two days to somewhere that most people wouldn't actually want to be in. Or like, you know, just really not even having a spare penny to uh, shake a stick at. But then like you hit your, um, I guess when you date in an older age, such as our age, in our mid-30s, and suddenly you're like, well, like if I want to buy something, then maybe I can do that in a way that I couldn't previously do. But then you realize, or at least for me as a man, having never really spent money on things like jewelry, that there's this whole world about that I don't know about. Um, I was in a expensive Berkeley jewelry shop about two hours ago, and the woman there sort of just masterfully upsold me until I was looking at a, um, you know, sort of gold and, and black diamond necklace that could easily feed a family of four for probably the next 20 years, provided they lived in Sri Lanka. And I had to um, luckily have a conversation with Kim's wife, which I always do before spending money on any jewelry or gemstones, in which she gently told me that the value is probably not what I was um, thinking. But the point is that I had no idea because it's a whole new world to me. So, like, what do you do when you're buying jewelry? How do you as a man say this is a fair price, this is not a fair price, the way you could if it was, say, a um, bespoke spoot? suit, a pair of, um, you know, leather Italian shoes, um, custom clothing of any kind, um, or any assortment of Italian motorcycles. Well, interesting you bring that up because right now there's a litany of diamond commercials and jewelry commercials during football games as we approach this season, and anyone who's not an idiot can do that math. But um, I've noticed that Basically all I, I don't know if there's competitors and I'd love to figure it out if we had a producer this would be a perfect project for them any producers in the Portland area I, I can I can bring you in once a week and pay you no money there's basically what there's Zales there's there's K every gift begins with K there's Zales and then like what's the other one I, the, the three of them are all owned by the same company because all three of them oh here we go Zales K. Jared, same company. It auto-populates on Google. Thanks, Google. Signet Jewelers Limited is the world's largest retailer of diamond jewelry. Signet operates approximately 3,600 stores. Name brands of K, Zales, Jared, The Galleria, H. Samuel, Ernest Jones, Peoples, and Piercing Pagoda. Okay, so the thing for me is like clearly you don't like you don't want to buy anything there right i mean that's got to no, be fuck like, that that's that's worse than ordering you know your engagement ring through overstock as someone i know did like basically at that point you might as well just buy a slave in libya i think they're selling is it libya or syria because you know that these if you've heard blood diamonds like these are like these are worse. What's these are like plasma diamonds. These are platelet diamonds. These are the bloodiest diamonds on earth. So yeah, if you wa if you walk into a mall and go to a jewelry store to buy your gemstones, you might as well be invading a um, third world country. Yeah. 
So, but then at the same time, like, so what? You're going to go, so you just find, it feels like if you go to the boutique, then you're immediately going to spend too much money. Like, it's like either, but then how, how would you, and how would you know how much anything is worth? Like you said. Sorry. Well, that's my point. That's a, that's a fundamental point that even, even if you're willing to spend amounts that 10 years before would seem sort of just jaw-droppingly obscene to spend, and then they just don't seem like that big of a deal suddenly, but, um... Even if you're willing to do that and your heart's in a good place and that's why you're doing it, you've, you've no idea, you know? It's like if you, it's, it's, if I teleported you into, like, the, the Klondike, the gold rush of the late 1800s, and you were walking around, you know, and you were trying to figure out how much you were supposed to pay for, like, the one guy in town who sold, like, whiskey or baked beans or something. Like, you'd have no idea what the value of an item was. So what they like how would you figure it out? Yeah, I mean you you can't go get a diamond yourself. You could. It would I mean how long I am starting to do some math in my head and realizing that basically diamonds are cheap because like, you know, you can make a pizza at home or you can go out and pay for a pizza and at some point if you get good at making pizza it ends up being like a pretty efficient process, very cheap ingredients, and you're like, you know what? I could have paid 18 bucks for this, but I'm gonna make it, and I'll I'll like the process. You can't make no a you can't make a diamond, and and you can't find a diamond. You can't polish a diamond. You can't set a stone. Shouldn't a diamond be like a million dollars a piece? Like how they must just not be that rare. Yeah, it turns out there's hundreds of them, and they're made in factories. Yeah giant factories and they're dug out of giant caves so it's really it's not a very special gift is what we're getting to uh one could easily argue that for sure and then we're getting into a whole other you know topic of conversation which is the diamond industry and how sort of horrible that is and why people buy diamonds to show that they love other people but and we don't have to go there <laughs> let's go let's, i mean you can well, make Let's go on one quick sidetrack back to like the Zales commercials because I'm sort of obsessed with that and I've been meaning to bring it up on a podcast for years and I'm glad now we're there. We've arrived there naturally. It's a good thing I don't do any pre-production. So here's my thing. Why are those commercials, they look like they're targeting like, you know, middle class to poor people and um, wait, you said couple minute left of podcast. We can edit this out what just tell me what you need to say i can just take it all out oh well i actually meant to send that text to someone else um gotcha thinking of coming over okay. all right great we'll leave it in there oh, it's not actually it's not actually intended for you. good thing you didn't write i fucking hate alex why do i have to do this podcast with him <laughs> yeah and the answer is because i love alex and i love podcasting okay so so who is buying that shit with like the biracial couple and like every gift begins with K and it's like she might have queefed but you got her this diamond and everyone's going to have a great Christmas night like what who how does that still work can you take me to that house can you take me to like what cars in their garage and like what kind of do they use Scott's turf builder or are they using like the competitor like what's going on there well we're we're getting into a an element of sort of um like class and demographics that I'm slightly uncomfortable being in, at least with my real first name being used. Uh, but I, I think the honest answer is there's a lot of people who buy a diamond engagement ring from um, 
from, you know, K's or Zoe's or whoever else is selling it. And I think there's a lot of people who, you know, go to Applebee's like a special, you know, night out. And I think there's a lot of people who, um, you know, do do things that, you know, such as buying shit from Amazon that we probably, that you might not want them to be doing, but they're doing because of the bottom line. All right, so this is just, this, not, this, is, this is my malfunction. Like, let's, you're right, it is class, classy, or cl- it's the opposite of classy. It's class warfare, it's unfair, where else are they supposed to get them? There's not like a diamond district in downtown Racine, Wisconsin, like whatever, I get it. I, I seem to have been born with a major malfunction. Some people have like six toes. Some people have a speech impediment. Some people, you know, gain weight in their midsection more than their ass or whatever it is. I look at that commercial and I just cannot believe it works on anybody. It's like I was born with a, with a, with a malfunctioning brain. I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm not mad at those people. I'm not mad that they're shopping there. I, I shouldn't judge them. I am surprised that they don't say like, man, that's cheesy. Like I should, there's gotta be something in the supply chain there that doesn't work out. I mean, I guess people just don't care. They just don't care. I think it's not just that they don't care, but they don't think that they should care. And they'd probably get kind of annoyed if someone told them that they should care. Well, and I don't think fundamentally they see any difference between doing that or buying a cheap pair of socks at Target, even if it was knitted by a small child in an impoverished nation who is working their like 16th hour of the day or anything else. I think it's kind of ironic that we can have webcams on like ski resorts so we can see what the powder report is when we wake up at 6 a.m. and have our first like joint and cup of coffee and decide whether we're going to hit first chair, whether we're going to like you know, hang around the house and get like the late sun corn skiing and that there aren't webcams in like all of the animal slaughterhouses where millions of like tortured cows are being processed into like Costco steaks. Like all this technology that we have is being used in the wrong way. Like how come with the most transparency of all time with this incredible distribution network of social media and with every phone in Bangladesh having a camera, we aren't seeing more instances that would make us choose against supporting sort of like commercialization of these extraction techniques. Like why? Like let's see what the diamonds mines are like at Zales. Like I guarantee they're not following the Kyoto Protocol or the, you know, the Brussels Statement or whatever the hell it is that helps people in those situations not get completely but that's, but that's easy. We see, we see what we want to see. We, we want to see a beautiful steak that someone Instagrams. We don't want to see a cow being hacked into pieces after its throat was cut. We see exactly what we want to see. When people buy a diamond, they want to see love. They want to see a fantasy. They want to see, like, you know, snowflakes coming down and like a, a warm fire on the hearth within and a beautiful woman smiling at a handsome man as she extends her hand and the sparkles coming off the, you know, cut stone. That's what they want to see. They don't want to see a pit in the middle of uh, African desert um, being manned by children who are being whipped while they tunnel through the rocks to find these stones that are going out. People see what they want to see. All right. Well, there you go. Something to think about. 
I didn't mean to pop any balloons there. No, I mean, it's fine. It's just, you know, I don't know how, oh, I mean, what should my goal be? Should I teach people to not to think about where their diamonds come from? Like, what are, what are people's action steps? They can not buy diamonds. Like, what are your action steps? Like, you have a compass. You have a conscience. Those might be the same things. You have a conscious, too. I don't really know what the two differences are. You have money. You have someone that you care about, and you want to show them a special present, and I support that. I, if you listen to the Landline Gift Guide with Phoebe, you heard that gifts should be sort of extraordinary items that you would never buy for yourself, and I think jewelry is a great example of that, so I support that idea. What are your action steps from here? Did you make a decision already? Like, did you Are you now petrified to go back to the store because someone who's you know, a uh, point of view you respect told you that you're completely overvaluing something that you had your heart set on. What's the plan here? Well, no, I mean, I'll just go to other stores and, and keep shopping around and, you know, spend probably way too much money for some other precious stone. And I've, and to be frank, I've never, I've never, I've never, I'm on record for easily the last 35 years of my life telling anyone who will listen that I don't believe that diamonds should be associated with love. And I've always hated that. But right. that being said, <laughs> go ahead. To do, I'm going to do exactly what I've been doing, which is I'm going to um, do most of my jewelry shopping after like two martinis so that I can make a mistake. And I'm not going to go into a mall to buy this shit. And I'm going to keep telling myself that I can get some beautiful, precious object and that I won't be getting ripped off and that ideally my money will be supporting some local, local artisan. And most importantly, that the person I'm buying it for will love and cherish it. Malls, something else everyone who had a head on straight knew was going out of business 10 years ago. I mean, who would have ever thought that malls would be someplace anybody wanted to be? All right. They're well, fucked. I, Nobody I, wants to own a mall anymore. So... Here's a great question that will take it to sort of more of a fun place, a more Harry Potter-ish, Hobbit-ish place that'll give sort of a holiday, warm, fuzzy feeling to our friends. And it's not Hanukkah. We're going to get there. We don't have to be on forever. We can do another solid 25 minutes, be good, and be gone. But if you had the resources, the time, and the travel itinerary, can you describe to our listeners how Saul Walchuk would actually acquire a diamond? And I'll give you one big hint, which is Russia. And I'll just let you go from there. Describe the scene if you were to go on to some sort of... You can you can interlace different periods of time. You don't have to worry about you know flying. It could be horse and buggy. You could take a steamership. Catherine the Great could be there. Someone like you knows a lot about... The, the Russian providence of diamonds, and I would love to hear your take on how you'd actually like to acquire something and return it to your to your lovely. Now you're asking me or our listeners? You. So if I if I had unlimited time and budget, should I describe my trip to Russia? Yeah, exactly. Like if you could tell me like the essence of actually getting a diamond. That's really what I'm talking about. We've described how getting a diamond is awful. Give us, it's like how, I can describe how someone should like acquire a venison steak, right? It's like a, it's a like lightly snowy November morning and there's a bow and arrow and you've been like sleeping in one spot and watching all the deer drift by waiting for the perfect one and you've made peace with the fact that you're living off the land 
and you know a beam of sun comes out from behind the clouds and you're with uh you know your father or your son or your brother or somebody that you share time with and i've never gone deer hunting and you like take down this majestic animal in an old-fashioned way that was provided by the people who actually did let live off the land and you know needed deer as a means for survival for centuries and did it successfully and then you would like take up you know the perfect like knife with a some sort of wooden handle or a, a, an antler handle and you would clean the deer and bring it back and butcher it and then season it perfectly and cook it in a cast iron pan and serve it with like a mushroom gravy and potatoes and you know a dark hearty green like a mustard green that's the way you would like harvest and serve a piece of venison so how would you acquire well, that sounds delicious how would you acquire a diamond well, I'll give you two answers. I'll give you one answer if I had five hours and one answer if I had five months. Okay, great. If I had five, if I had five hours, I'd charter a private jet and I'd fly to Antwerp, Belgium, and I'd sit down on like the 20th floor of a windowless building and haggle with the Israeli merchants who fly in from all over the country to buy the diamonds wholesale. And I'd just do my best to get the best possible deal from them, which would obviously end up with me getting ripped off and then going to synagogue with them to try to convince them to give my money back. If I had five months, however, I'd probably start my voyage in um, the Netherlands, uh, Amsterdam, and I'd become an intern at a shipyard for a couple of months in homage to Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia, who famously traveled outside of Russia, becoming the first Tsar to do so during his reign. Uh, going to said Netherlands to learn the art of shipbuilding while attempting to remain completely anonymous, which was difficult because his notorious height, six foot five or six foot six inches, made him literally tower over the entire rest of the country, even the notoriously tall Dutch. Uh, so I'd start there for a couple months, earn an honest day's wages. Then from there, I'd travel to Moscow and take winter sleigh to uh, travel to St. Petersburg, uh, take um, a winter sleigh east to Moscow. And that would really put me in the heart of the diamond buying territory of that stretch of the world. From there, I'd probably try to network with um, Iranians uh, who I'd meet while purchasing large amounts of sturgeon, uh, figure out how to get to the Baltic Sea, scoop up some green amber, which goes well with diamonds, and then from there, do my best to haggle successfully until I could unearth some sort of vintage heirloom worn by some nobility about 400 years before and hopefully housed in a uh, peasantish sort of museum and undervalued ever since. So that would be sort of my long-term goal of getting the best possible diamond. I think that makes sense. I feel like you'd probably be wearing a lot of fur. and A lot of fur, mostly sable, some mink. And what about eating? A lot of fish? Smoked fish? Uh, I'd probably subsist almost entirely on caviar-stuffed blinis, uh, but I would eat certain dumplings and obviously a healthy share of uh, sturgeon. Unless I was in the Georgian territories, whereby I'd move more towards the kind of stewed meats and red wines that they're known for. God, my mouth is watering. All right. So it turns out diamond buying is easy if you have the time and money. And it can be something that does represent its quantity in the world and its 
and it's uh, it's scarcity. That's a better that's a better word. It's to represent its scarcity and its exoticness and it's all the words that you would be better to come up with than me. But there is you know the going to the mall in your like 2011 limited Ford Expedition and going into Zales and buying it on layaway. I just, I, I, I don't, I, it's like, it's better to not have it, right? Wouldn't it be better to never get a diamond until you finally could? And then that would... Well, re- yes, exactly. Exactly. Or just never get a diamond. Right. Get some other shit instead. I, I couldn't agree more. All right. <clears throat> well, um, let's just check. So look, the, the, bot- the bottom line is, if you're if you're a man in his thirties trying to learn the finer arts of jewelry shopping, I, I think you basically need one or two trustworthy women um, who you can go to, as much for value as for style. They you need you need someone telling you you're spending too much money or you're not spending too much money or you should get this or you should not get this. You can't trust yourself. Yeah, and I, I feel like when you're buying something as precious and sort of stupid as as a gem or, and it, you know, there's a lot of things like that, finding an experience for yourself that's worthy of the present is is part of the, of the, the whole excitement for you, the giver. So if you could wait until you got to go to a city and go to a little corner shop someplace where somebody's been doing this for generations and where you can actually have a sit-down conversation. It doesn't necessarily need to yield the most expensive or largest or precious stone. Just engaging with that supply chain at, at its retail level and feeling like you're actually part of some sort of authentic delivery of the piece into the market is a nice way of getting that like little magic wand of like ring into that experience and it has like an old world authentic and time honored tradition that is worth engaging with right i don't know maybe i sound like a complete Completely. pretentious Completely. cock i don't know look i think the i think the best damn way to do it is to do what i did in grad school and just spend six months studying gem setting and silversmithing and then just make a bunch of shit and give it to the person mm. that's cool yeah until you break up through no fault of your own and then you get pissed at yourself for all the months you spend in the silversmithing shop all right well we've got a, a a row of uh topics here that you suggested all of which are exciting and I, there's no way we're going to get through all of them so how, how how are you on time and how do you want to proceed well i think we're we're nearing the the daily wrap-up but that just means that we'll podcast again tomorrow um to hit the other salient points how do you want to wrap up? Well, I've, I'll miss 5 o'clock yoga no matter what. So the pressure is off in, in that sense. But Why don't you tell us about Hanukkah? You're going to be our only Hanukkah guest for 2017. And uh, tell us about the party. Tell us about the, the you know, strikes and gutters and engage us in the, in the season, in the spirit of the season. Look, Hanukkah is a great holiday. Um, you have to take it in stride. It was, it was never supposed to be the most important holiday of the year, and it gets artificially, you know, pegged up in status because it happens to fall near Christmas, and so people just assume that it matters more than it actually does. 
But that being said, it's fun. You, I think the point about Hanukkah, as far as I'm concerned, is that you don't need to go hog wild. For me, a, a solid Hanukkah is this. You get a um, bunch of potatoes and onions and you grate them together and you have a bunch of people over. Um, you get a little stone and then you play the blessings on your trumpet instead of singing them, even though other people are already singing them. Um, you walk around anxiously wondering if, like, the safflower oil that you're using has a sufficiently high temperature point so it doesn't smoke and set off your fire alarm. Um, you make one batch of latkes too faulty, feel like an idiot, and then end up spending, like, four hours making 10 pounds worth of other latkes that everyone can eat. Um, you get caught up in the moment. You get surprised when people start to go home because you think that the party's just getting started, and then you remember that it's a Sunday night and people have to work in the morning. You leave midway through the night and drive to Whole Foods to buy sour cream because you forgot to do it and end up inviting a bunch of random people who work at Whole Foods back to your place for latkes. You put a cute scarf on your cat because someone gave that present to your cat, and it's amazing, and that's probably like the best single moment of the entire holiday. Um, you light candles, you watch candles drip wax all over your counter, you blow the candles out, or you let them melt down into the menorah, um, and then you wake up with a mild headache, wondering why there's half a pot of mulled wine on your stove still sizzling. That's Hanukkah. Wow, that sounds like a mulled wine reduction to me. It, it turns out it's always delicious. That sounds so good, and and I, I know that my listeners will hate that this is the piece of information that I'm focusing on, but grating the onions and potatoes at the same time. Are we talking about like an old-fashioned block cheese grater? Is that the way? You, you don't. You're not gonna like use a Cuisinart. It's very un Hanukkah. Like if they didn't have oil, they didn't have like a, a food processor. No, God, no. The irony is that I have a Cuisinart, and I spent like half an hour searching for a circular disc that grates because you can't, you don't want to sort of um, process it into nothing. So I had that, and then I just was too agitated and stressed about the ticking clock and the guests coming over for to even figure out like how to sort of plug that whole apparatus in. So then, yeah, I just sweated it out and did about 40 minutes on a, a Parmesan grater combined with, like, a shitty mandolin that I had and just grated a lot of onions, a lot of potatoes, whipped them up with some flour, egg, baking powder, salt, pepper, mm. and a touch of um, holiday blessings, and, and there's your latke. So you have – it's with the baking powder, it's almost leavened a little bit. It puffs up a little bit, so that it really is almost like a little more pancakey. Exactly. Exactly. And do you, good do you, golden brown. Is it just in your head, or did you do you pull out a cookbook? I know you like to use books even in times of tradition because it's like a festive add-on to the experience. This for me, this for me was going off of you know recipes variations that have been floating around for for years, if not generations. Uh, but it's all it's all basically the same. You know, one one person might say use baking powder, one might not. One might say use you know a pound and a half of potatoes to every onion, one might say a pound. Uh, one might say add a little matzo or um, cornmeal to get some extra kind of crispy brown on the outside. One might say not. But 
it's kind of like if you're cooking, you know, a, a roast chicken. A lot of people will tell you how to do it, but fundamentally the bird's going in the oven. All right. And did you use olive oil or did you get like peanut oil, something that can smoke higher? I told you, safflower oil. Oh, sorry. I was like, I was in, I was there. I was thinking about how fun it was. And I, you actually really got me on that moment of like, oh, there's so much excitement throwing a party. I mean, you, me and you have this in common and maybe not everyone else does, but it's always, and, and this is true for weddings too, I think, and any sort of large event. I always think it goes by too quick and then it's over and it never kind of like, I wish everyone would stay till four in the morning at events like that. Um, depending if it's me at someone else's house, I want to get out of there by like nine fifteen. But when I'm having the party and the, it reaches that din and everyone's the perfect amount of drunk, I think someplace halfway through their third drink before people start complaining and arguing with each other and saying they have to get home to their kids and whatever it is. There is that sense of like, I wish this could perpetually go on forever, which is a little bit of an irony when it comes to drugs and alcohol. Like it, that you're always chasing that like perfect plateau and it ends up always sort of dipping and then you overcorrect and like put yourself into some sort of market spiral when it comes to the ups and downs. So, um, that's very true. That's very true. But you're right. You, when you reach that plateau, you know it. And it's amazing. It's this little perfect bubble in time. And you and your guests are all just floating around in it, happy as clams. And all you want to do is stay there forever. And then people leave. So applesauce with the latkes as well. Oh, loads of applesauce, loads of applesauce. Jarred or homemade? This time, this time, um, homemade in jars. Uh, I, I would have loved to make applesauce uh, if I hadn't spent the previous 72 hours meeting with a total of, I think, 32 different um, clients, as, as I could call them. Then I would have loved to spend a day making homemade applesauce. Well, I'll just do a little recipe of the week. Maybe we need a recipe of the week on landline. Um, let's, and that that'll be the bridge to my cookbook that I'm going to write, Saul. That where this is going to happen. You've you've paved the way. That if you want to accomplish projects that you had a lot of, you know, vive, vive joie de vivre for. If you had a, you had a lot of vigor to accomplish something, that you should cut your friends out of it and do it yourself. But you've been a nice mentor to me on this cookbook idea I have, and. You know, one is applesauce. Here, here's a recipe for everyone. Apples, basically you can't screw it up unless you buy them without enough water, which I did in a recent vacation experience, and I ended up just burning a bunch of uh, apples. But basically all you're trying to do is just coax the water out of the apples, peel the apples with a vegetable peeler, cut them into rustic chunks around the core, have them so they're not too big, throw them into a pot with a cover, could be Teflon, could be like a Le Creuset, something that is sturdy and thick. Put it on medium low, medium. Add cinnamon and lemon. Just look, you know, like you're dressing a salad. You really can't fuck it up. And then put the top on and let it roll. And 25 minutes later, you stir it with a spoon. All the apples just literally crumble into themselves into sauce. And you have applesauce. And it's my son's favorite food. So homemade applesauce was a maybe a bridge too far for you, but I think not a bridge too far for our listeners great sweet treat on a uh on oatmeal in the morning on um latkes in the afternoon evening while the candles are being lit um in cake on yogurt i mean there's all kinds of stuff did i say yogurt already i said oatmeal or just as a snack it's a delicious treat 
And let's just remember that um, the good thing about Hanukkah is that it's eight nights, and so if you don't do something or if you do something you regret one night, there's usually another night right around the corner, meaning the next night. So just because I didn't make homemade applesauce last night, it doesn't mean that I can't take your recipe and do so tonight, Hanukkah's penultimate night, or tomorrow. Well, I might make latkes tonight for dinner. I think you should. I've got sour cream. I've got applesauce. I've got potatoes. I've got onions. Well, if you have a cheese grater, you're all set. I got it. All right. Well, did you prepare this week in news for us? I know this was a pretty impromptu episode of Landline for you. This 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 week I didn't. I think we're going to do this week in news starting next week, <laughs> which will be called next week in news. All right. Well, how does it feel to get back on the podcast horse? Tell Tell our growing list of listeners who are – sort of promoting this show internally to their friends and, and uh, you know, let them know that you'll be around for the long haul. You're not going to be like an abusive stepfather who just comes in at Christmas, at Hanukkah, and, and you know, promises them all the gifts in the world and then doesn't show up again until three years later in a casket when he's coming back from some Southeast Asian conflict. I'm committed. I'm, I'm all in balls to the wall, full charge ahead. I'm I'm in the podcast world, and people are going to be hearing plenty of my voice. I can promise you that. And we're going to be around for a long time. That's it. I mean, you know what I realized with the podcast is as long as we're having fun doing it, then I don't really care if anyone listens. And that's how it'll be, it'll become good. That all all the best art does. So, um, with that, I, I think our I think our goal is to podcast continuously and grow our audience until at some point. The president or CEO of Zales sends us, like, an angry, pissed-off letter, uh, possibly involving his attorneys, uh, asking us to stop talking shit about his cheap diamonds. I couldn't agree more. I think that the this podcast will have arrived when we receive our first cease and desist. If I keep trumpeting, you know, baseless facts about companies I actually know nothing about with such vigor, resentment, and, you know, uh, the litany of, of made-up um facts and details that I that I bring to the table I think that we will achieve that goal at some time in the relatively middle future so that's exciting I can't wait for that um, and what yeah, and, hope, and, and at this point I who hope can... it'll be funded by Peter Thiel secretly as he sues us for some sort of First Amendment violation oh god I mean look at this point who knows what tr- what truth it even is anymore right so I, I think we're it's one 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 benefit of the uh, current the current, oh, who cares? Let's not even talk about it. All right, well, with that, I want to welcome back Saul. Saul versus Alex. Alex versus Saul. It is Landline Podcast. The new number is 503-894-8480. We come on Tuesdays. See you next Tuesday, if you need to remember it, is our moniker at the end of the show. It might, it might turn into a see you next Thursday. We had some good results with that last week, which is pretty much just a result of... Um, me not getting my shit together. So, do you have any like parting shots for the other podcast guests? Max Giles is coming up. Tim's wine episode that'll never happen. Um, the football guys are coming up. We got all the biggest, all the greatest hits. We're closing the show with the greatest hits. Um, you're like the first song we played after the after the final set this year like our first encore just to get everyone remembering like how good the band is and we'll engage them in for the total tour so any parting shots 
Uh, just remember, if you're spinning the dreidels out there, hope for gimel because that means you get it all, as opposed to shin, which means that you have to give in part of what you have to the larger pot. So hoping for gimels in this holiday season. Gimel that, gimel that. All right, thanks so much, Saul. Thanks for being on Landline. We'll talk to you again soon. Over and out. You're listening to Landline.